But I'm excited for today because today we're going to be taking a look at one of my favorite miracles Jesus ever performed in the Bible. We find it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. And it's also recorded in other Gospels. But this is where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And there is just so much to unpack in this one section of Scripture. And the main scope and theme of this message is about living out our faith and having a tangible faith and bringing people to Jesus. So will you join me as we open in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. And God, I pray today as we open up your word and you allow me to speak about it, that you don't let me say anything you don't want me to say. And God, I pray you work on our hearts and change our lives. And God, we invite your presence with us this morning. Thank you for what you do. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So have you guys noticed that in a lot of areas of life, we are either a help or a hindrance? When I was younger in elementary school, we used to play two-hand touch football. Recess, lunch. If we had two minutes to spare, we're going to play two-hand touch. And the way we would pick teams is everyone would line up, and there would be two team captains, and they would start picking their teams. Now going into this, Every time, I'd always think, you know, I'm easy, top four, maybe five. But every time we would pick teams, I would always get picked last, simply because I just couldn't catch football. The ball would just hit my hands and fall straight down. And elementary schoolers can be a little mean, and they gave me a nickname. They called me Wombat. I never got that nickname. I didn't even know what a Wombat was. You know, in their eyes, I was definitely a hindrance. Same thing when it comes to cooking. Cooking is definitely not in my wheelhouse. I'll burn cereal. It's, <laughs> it's a different story. Um, but I'm so lucky and just blessed and privileged to have such a beautiful and amazing wife, Emily. And she has a real skill when it comes to cooking. And she'll be in the kitchen all the time just cooking up delicious treats. And a lot of times I'll go up to her and I'll ask her. I'll be like, hey, Emily, how can I help? She only looks at me and says, you're better at eating than cooking. I don't know how to take that. Is that a compliment? I like, okay, good. I like to think it's a compliment. But the times that she does let me help in the kitchen, man, I'll go from Adam to Emerald real quick. It could be something as simple as like sprinkling salt on chicken. Like I'll bounce that salt off my elbow. Have you ever seen one of those like chopped cooking shows where they're super vocal in the kitchen? Where it's like, yes, chef, no chef, behind you, and they do a spin? That turns into me. You can, you can ask Emily about it. It gets pretty crazy in the kitchen. But when it comes to actually cooking, I am definitely a hindrance. Now, when it comes to leading people to know and love Jesus, are we a help or are we a hindrance? You know, some people might say, oh, I'm neutral. You know, I'm just one fish in a big pond. How much of a difference can I really make? But I feel like when it comes to this, leading people to Jesus, there's no middle ground. It's either you're a help or you're a hindrance. And I know no one in here wants to raise their hand and say I'm a hindrance. And honestly, I don't think many people here are. But today we're going to be taking a look at a story in the Bible where a group of people who would classify themselves as wanting people to experience and encounter God were a hindrance to someone actually getting to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon, the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, 
four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. In this opening scene, we have a paralyzed man on a mat trying to get to Jesus. Now, we don't know too much about this man, but what we do know is that the doctors weren't working. The medicine wasn't working. He couldn't even get to places by himself. He had to be carried. Here's a man with no other place to turn to. And it says that four, four men were carrying him. Some Gospels record them as friends. And we don't know how long this journey took or how many obstacles they encountered along the way. But when they finally made it to where Jesus was, they encountered another obstacle, the crowd. Now, this crowd would be a religious community. I like to call it spectator syndrome. You know, these were the type of people who loved the idea of Jesus as long as it was beneficial to them and their needs. You know, they loved to hear spiritual things and loved to be around church. They knew the law, knew the scripture. They knew how to play church. Spiritual on the outside, but completely oblivious to someone actually getting to Jesus. These were the type of people who knew where to sit, who knew where the coffee was, knew how to dress or the right things to say. But when it came to someone actually getting to Jesus, they were nothing but an obstacle. So at the end of verse 4, these four friends, it says, So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. See, these four friends, they found a way. They weren't in the way like the crowd, but they found a way. These were the type of people who would not sit idly by and watch someone's hope, future, destiny slip away. These were the type of people who would not let an obstacle stand in their way when it came to bringing someone to Jesus. They didn't care if they had to vandalize someone's roof. Like, like what must this scene have looked like? Like, imagine that Jesus is up here right now just preaching an awesome sermon, like he always does. And all of a sudden, you start seeing some dust come down from the ceiling. And you start seeing some light come through. I don't know about you, but I'd be like Don Meister, Don Desmond. I need Don somewhere because that doesn't look right. <laughs> like, what a crazy scene. And every time I go through this story, I always put myself in the shoes of the homeowner. Like, he's probably sitting there thinking, I should not have let this Jesus dude preach here. Like, now they're tearing up my roof. It's like a first century frat party. Like, well, well, like, what a crazy scene, but that's church. Yeah, you see, these four friends, they found a way. And they lower their friend to the feet of the healer. So who are we? You know, are we the crowd? You know, are we spiritual on the outside, but completely oblivious to someone actually encountering the risen Savior, Jesus? Or are we like these four friends? who would find a way at all costs. And we need to be like these four friends. You know, 9-11, 2001, a lot of just saying those words probably sends tingles down your spine. A lot of you remember where you were that day. I remember sitting there watching the news, seeing those planes fly into the Twin Towers watching people jump from the side, watching them collapse. You know, that day had such a massive impact on my life. 
it was one of the main reasons I decided to join the Marine Corps. You know, I wanted to do something about that. And that day, 3,000 people lost their lives. We could line them up from this stage, front to back, and they'd go out past the doors, past the lobby, onto Blanco. They'd go all the way to Knob Hill. You could walk down that line, seeing every face. It's a tragedy. In 2004, there was an earthquake in Haiti. 230,000 people lost their lives. We could line them up from this stage, and they'd go well past Knob Hill. They'd go past Monterey, into the ocean for seven miles. You could walk down that line, seeing every face. It's a tragedy. There are 3.1 billion unreached people in the world. These aren't just unsaved people. These are people with little to no access to the gospel. Most of these people will live their whole lives never hearing the hope and the salvation that is found in Jesus. 3.1 billion. They make up almost 42% of the world's population. We could line them up from this stage. And they would go past Knob Hill, past Monterey, into the ocean, into Asia, across Europe, back into the ocean, back into America, and they would come back right to this point and keep going. They would wrap around the world again and again and again and again. They would wrap around the world almost 10 times. You could only imagine walking down that line, seeing every face. And I don't know about you, but that just breaks my heart. Are, are we the type of people who find a way? Because it starts right here. We all know that person in our life who either doesn't know Jesus or has a jaded or twisted view of God. And you know, a person on a mission will find a way. And if not, we'll find an excuse. Oh, it's easy to find an excuse. It's easy to say, I don't want to present the gospel to them because it might affect our workplace relationship. Or I don't want to present the gospel to them because it might make family dinners a little awkward. But if you saw that person dying from starvation, would you give them something to eat? If you saw that person dying of thirst, would you give them something to drink? If you saw that person dying spiritually, would you present them with the bread of life, the fountain of living water? Who are we? You know, do we play church? Do we only do this church thing when it's convenient for us? You know, here's something for you. The church isn't about you. The church's purpose is to worship and glorify God. 
and bring people to him. You know, oftentimes, I don't think it's what the church does that's the problem. I think it's often what we're unwilling to do. So who are we? See, these four friends, they found a way. They would not sit idly by and watch their friend's hope, future, slip away. And they lower their friend to the feet of the healer. And in verse 5, it says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. There's a lot to unpack in just this one verse. It starts off, it says, seeing their faith. Notice how it says their faith, not his faith. Jesus is including these four friends. Seeing their faith. Jesus saw something in them. You know, a lot of people talk about faith or talk about wanting to experience faith, but something changes when faith becomes tangible, when it starts affecting the way you live your life, when people can see it. You know, I believe the easiest way to make a follower of Jesus is by showing them, showing them in the way that you live your life. People can see it. You know, oftentimes people don't need you to preach a sermon. They need you to live one. Seeing their faith. And then Jesus tells this man, my child. Now this is kind of odd. This is kind of odd because in this time, in this culture, they often paralleled sin with ailments. They believed that if you were paralyzed, it was because you sinned or your parents sinned, and that's why you're like this. I can only imagine the hate and the judgment that this man received from the religious community. People just like the crowd coming at him with, you sinner. You know, if your parents would have lived a better life, you wouldn't be like this. Or if you didn't sin, you would be able to walk. Yeah, here you have Jesus coming at this man saying, my child. You know, I don't know where you're at on your walk with Christ. Maybe you're questioning this whole Jesus thing. I don't know. But something that I do know is that when you do come to Jesus, he's not coming at you with, you sinner. He's coming at you with open arms saying, my child, I accept you. And Jesus tells us, man, his sins are forgiven. I bet he wasn't expecting that. You see, this man was coming to Jesus to be able to walk again. But Jesus saw the real problem. The real problem wasn't his inability to walk. The real problem was a heart issue. It was a sin problem. And notice how Jesus addressed this man's most critical need first. He gave him a new heart, a new soul. Man, Jesus gave this man the greatest gift in the world. You know, Christmas, birthdays, no gift that you have ever received will ever compare or come close to the gift that Jesus offers us of salvation. But you know what's interesting about this story? That Jesus gave this man forgiveness of sin, the greatest gift in the world. 
but the scriptures don't record anything happening immediately. Like he's still sitting on the ground. Now, I don't know, but, but I think, I think the moment Jesus told this man his sins are forgiven, he was able to walk. I just don't think he knew it. And with us, as professing Christ followers, we have the greatest gift in the world money cannot buy. But are we sitting on the floor like this man? Or is our faith alive? Is it standing? Is it walking? Is it tangible? Does the way we live our life reflect the salvation that's within? I want to turn very briefly to the book of James. Now, the book of James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. But unfortunately, it is probably one of the most misinterpreted books in the Bible. Three pages. In James chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now hear me on this. Hear me very clearly on this. It is with the blood of Jesus that we are saved. We can never work towards it. We can never work for it. No good deed that you ever do in your life will ever amount to salvation. It is a free gift from God. The question is, what are we doing with that faith? You know, now some people might take the book of James and say, you see, you need good deeds in your life in order to be saved. But that is just simply not the case. The way James puts it, he's saying these good deeds are not the cause for salvation, rather the effect. It's I don't do these good things to be saved, it's I do these good things because I'm saved. And James talks about a living faith versus a dead faith. Is our faith alive? Is it standing? Is God's love, grace, and mercy so evident within our life that people can see it? that it's affecting every aspect of our life. There used to be a, a song. I, I haven't heard it in a long time. But the song went like, you know, if, if following Jesus, if, if living your life the way this book says, if being a Christian was a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict me? That song used to just gut check me. Because I would take a look at my life and I would say, no, it clearly says on my Facebook I'm a Christian. Or, or I come to church on Sunday. Man, but that's not what a Christian is. You see, the word Christian was first used in the book of Acts at Antioch. And historians believe that it's used as a derogatory term towards these new followers of Christ as a way to brush off their arguments. Oh, you Christian. And some people think the word Christian means Christ-like, but it doesn't. The word Christian means a part of or belonging to Christ. And these early followers of Jesus were like, you know what, yeah, we are Christians. Even the enemies of them could see it in the way they lived their life and the way they conducted themselves. It was evident. You know, you can imagine the perspective from this man probably feeling acceptance and love from a religious leader for probably the first time in his whole life. 
You can imagine the perspective from these four friends who went through this whole journey to get their friend to Jesus. You want to know how I know these four friends had faith? It's because it would be a lot easier to lower this man down and have him walk out than have to bring him back up. <laughs> Took me a little bit to think of that one. <laughs> you can imagine the perspective from the crowd. And actually, in the very next verse, we get the perspective of the crowd. In verse 6, it says, But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And they're right, to some degree. They're right about only God being able to forgive sin. Yet little do they know who Jesus really is. And in verse 8, it says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So we asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. Jesus turns to this man and says, stand up. In other words, get up off the floor. Ignite your faith. Stand up. There are still a lot of Christians on the floor. He tells them to pick up his mat. Now, I can only imagine the pools of tears that this man cried on this mat. You know, he ate, slept, begged, all on this mat. Now, it was his life. And Jesus says, pick up your mat. In other words, pick up your old life because you're a new creation in Christ. The thing that once had a grip on you, you now have a grip on it. But notice how Jesus says, like, pick it up. As in, like, take it with you. Why didn't Jesus just say, leave it? You see, I think this part is so important. It is so important for us to carry our mat because we all once were paralyzed to sin. But because of Jesus and what Jesus did for us, we are new creations and we should carry our mat. Because when your chest gets too puffed up and you start thinking you're all that, you take a look at your mat and you remember God's goodness and his grace. You remember the place that Jesus took you out of. Do we carry our mat? Do we carry our mat in a way that the people around us and in our world know how good and gracious God is? just by the way we carry our mat. And then Jesus tells this man to go. In other words, go live out your faith. Go do something with it. You know, all too often we'll say no when God says go. You know, but God, I'm really comfortable in this area of my life, go. But God, you don't know how hard it is to share the gospel with people, man. I really don't want to hurt this relationship. Go. Are we the type of people who stand up, who pick up our mat, and who go? 
Are we the type of people who are not in the way, but we'll find a way when it comes to bringing someone to Jesus? Because there's a real problem in the world. That problem's us. You see, the world would like to see that number of 3.1 billion unreached people to climb. Yeah, we're going to be a problem for that. The world would like to see the amount of saved people decline. Yeah, we're going to be a problem for that. Are we the type of people who stand up, who pick up our mat, and who go? Father, we thank you for this morning. And God, I pray you strengthen us as we go. I pray you strengthen us for the obstacles that we might face the mountains that we might encounter. Because all too often, we'll take a look at that mountain rather than looking above it and looking towards you. God, I pray you help us find a way when it comes to bringing people to you because we know that you are our only hope, our only salvation, our only chance, our only shot. God, thank you for saving us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.